Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Hey, friends, and welcome to the Happy Hour with Jamie Ivy podcast. I'm your host, Jamie, and I'm so glad you're here. Each week on this show, I invite a friend to join me, and we chat about the big things in life, the little things in life, and everything in between. Hi, friends, and welcome to the happy hour. I'm your host, Jamie, and wow, we have a fun show for you today. I'm so glad that you are here with us. You know, just on a personal note, this is the last Friday before my kids start school. I can't even believe it. My kids start school next Tuesday. I have a senior in high school, which feels crazy, and if any of you guys have been listening here forever, you have heard me talk about my oldest, all my kids for sure, but now I have one that's about to be graduating, you guys. I cannot even believe it, so what a year I'm about to embark on. If you've done this before, send me all your advice. In all seriousness, I'm excited for school to start, not because I'm ready for my kids to be out of the house or go back to school, but I do love a routine and I love the routine of school year. I also love football. You guys know that. And so I'm excited for our football season this year. But if you're a mama or if you're an aunt or a grandmother or a caregiver of a child, I know that school starting is right around the corner for most of us. And so I just hope that as you go into this next school year, that we can be intentional with our kids and we can pray for them. And so we got this. We can do this. You guys today on the show, I sat down with Lolo Jones. Lolo Jones, she's an Olympic athlete in bobsledding and track and field. Can you even believe that? She's currently training for the 2022 Winter Olympics, which I have no idea how because of the way that the Olympics went this summer, but it's right around the corner. Lolo also recently released a book called Over It, which is loaded with encouragement and overcoming failure and pursuing thankfulness. In fact, Lolo knows a lot about overcoming failure, and we talk about this on the show today because in 2008, when she was in the Olympics, she was set to win gold. She should have won gold, but she's a hurdler and you got to get over all the hurdles and she hit the ninth hurdle. She tells us this story today and no matter if you are a track and field athlete, a hurdler, or you are just feeling down in the dumps for whatever it is, Lolo has some encouragement for us. Guys, I don't know about you, but maybe you're thinking, you know what? My kids are about to go back to school or maybe even you're about to go back to school yourself and you're thinking, I would like to kind of dive into a Bible study. Well, we have a Bible study available for you. It's called Your Story Matters. We released this actually during COVID and it's all online, which was such a blessing early on in COVID when everyone was very much quarantined to have something that you could log on and do together with friends over Zoom and it was all on the internet. The Bible study is called Your Story Matters and it is a six-week course on how your story can change the world. And I hope that you feel that way when you listen to the happy hours. We share stories, especially like the story we're going to share today from Lolo Jones and about how her story is impacting so many people around the world. Well, this is a six-week course that confronts the lies that keeps so many of us from sharing our stories. Some of the lies that we talk about in this Bible study are, my story doesn't matter, or the story's not mine completely to share. My story's not big enough, or it's too much. Some of you might feel like I can't share my story because I'm in the messy middle of it. Oftentimes we think people are going to think less of me or no one's going to understand. You guys, I understand all of these lies. I've had all of these feelings and we break them down in this Bible study together. Go to jamieivy.com slash your story matters. And from there, you can download all of the teaching videos. It's $19. So for less than $20, you have a Bible study right there in your home. You can gather some girlfriends to do it together. There's a study guide that comes with it. There's a bonus video session between my husband and myself where we talk about how do we share our stories with our spouses. So if you're looking for something 
to do this fall or anytime you want to do it, honestly, because you can do it at your own pace. Go to jamieivy.com slash your story matters. All right, guys, here is my conversation with Lolo Jones, who has a phenomenal story that actually really matters. Here she is. Lolo, welcome to the happy hour. Thank you for having me. This is so great. Okay, so I know where you are and we're recording this at the end of July, but you tell everyone where you are right now recording this from. I am in the, the Olympic Training Center in Lake Placid, New York. Okay, so you're going to have to educate me a little bit on this because I'm not very familiar with Winter Olympics and bobsledding. And we're going to talk about that later, but you already go to the Olympic Training Center a year before the event? Well, we're not a year. We're six months out because... Stop. The, yeah, because, oh, because the Summer Olympics got pushed up. So now everybody thinks we're a year up, but we're really like six months away. Uh, yeah, this is like the start of our season. So we have a competition in next week that will determine like the process of who's going to be on Team USA. And then once Team USA is announced, then we weed out and figure out who's going to be on the Olympic team for the next four months. So the Olympic team will be announced in January. So Okay. We are also confused with COVID and the Olympics getting pushed back to 2021, which Trust I think... Me, I- I am too. Sometimes I put on my summer stuff and think I'm training for the summer Olympics. I'm like, no, you're training for bobsled now. (laughs) It has to be confusing, especially as knowing an athlete going between summer and winter Olympics, which you educated me in your book that there's only 10 athletes who have competed in both summer and winter Olympics. Well, now there's 11. So the flag bearer for the summer Olympics, Eddie Alvarez, I actually was on the team with him in the Sochi Olympics and he went for as speed skater. And now he's going for summer Olympics for baseball. So really stoked about that to have a number 11. (laughs) Okay. I'm going to say something really dumb. I didn't even know we had an Olympic baseball team. It just got back in. Okay. Thank you. Now I feel better because I love the Olympics and I'm like, how did I miss that? So that's a new thing. It was out for a few Olympics. So now it's just back in. Okay. Okay. Well, okay. All this Olympic chatter is so exciting because I do love the Olympics, but introduce yourself and you can tell us, give us your accolades, tell us what you've done, but we're going to go back and we're going to talk about all the things because you had a book that came out this summer and I've read it and it's so good and so encouraging. You don't have to be an athlete to enjoy your book. So first tell us who is Lolo Jones? I'm a three-time Olympian, summer and winter, also a three-time world champion and I'm a hurdler for track and field and for bobsled, I'm the brakeman, which means I essentially pull the brakes at the end of the race so that we do not go <laughs> past the course and die. <laughs> I learned more about bobsledding from your book than I ever knew about bobsledding before. And I'm sure you only gave us very little about it. Actually, there's probably so much more. I didn't know that when you were in that bobsled that you guys couldn't talk to each other. Oh, we can talk, but they will not hear me at all. That's what I meant. <laughs> it's so loud. It's just honestly, it feels like a car crash or it sounds like a car crash every time you're in it. So I'm assuming you have earplugs in. No, no earplugs. Your hearing is okay after all those bobsled races? It's just the helmet's so big and, and thick, you know, on top of like just they're, you know, going on this track at almost 90 miles an hour. The only time I can really hear them is at the end of the course. So I have to learn the track and know what part we are at the end. And then once it's at the end, I, I pop my head up and then I can kind of hear the driver screaming, break, break. <laughs> <laughs> And that's your job. Your job is to get it started and then your job is to stop. Yes, correct. And for the rest of the time, you're just chilling in the back? You know, prayers help. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of prayers, you know, it gets a little bit iffy sometimes. Sometimes you're like, I think we're about to crash. So (laughs) I am not about that. I would be so scared of doing that. But now we will be cheering for you 
hopefully after all the trials and stuff, you'll have to let us know. Okay. So I want to go back because your book talks about a lot of your upbringing, growing up in poverty and growing up moving a lot and just really having some obstacles that you had to overcome. You then became a track athlete star at LSU, go Tigers. And then you went on and you've been a, a competitive athlete since then, but you talk about your 2008 Olympic games. And so I think that's a good place for us to start here because what I love so much about your retelling of that, and I'm going to ask you to do that, is that as I was reading it, I've never competed in, you know, on as big a stage as you have, but I still found myself understanding what you were feeling. Okay. Nice. So, well, that's what I wanted. Yeah. Because we've all had hopes and dreams that were right in front of us. And then all of a sudden they were gone. And so, explain to the listeners what was that hope and dream that was literally, I mean, yeah, in the bag, basically. So when I first tried out to be an Olympic athlete, I came short. Like I didn't even make the finals. I wasn't even a top, the top American in the U S. And so I honestly, I thought I would never be an Olympic athlete. Was that for the 2004 Olympics? Correct. Okay. And you know, my coach is like, you're still young. Let's go for this. So every year just worked really hard to get better. And then, you know, I went from like getting eighth place, the fifth place, the fourth, like you know, so then the year of 2008 Olympics out of nowhere, I mean, not out of nowhere, I build myself up, but that's my year. And I started winning every race. And not only did I make my first Olympic team, I had the fastest time in the world. And so I go to my first Olympics in Beijing. It's like an overnight change. Like no one knew my name a month ago. And then all of a sudden everybody's like, Oh my gosh, this girl, Lolo Jones, she's about to break the world record. She's easily going to win the gold medal. And so I'm running the rounds first round, the second round, everything is going so smoothly. Like I'm having PBs, like that means personal best. I'm just running insanely smooth and fast. And so in the final, you know, the starter says runner, take your mark. And I, you know, he sets the gun off and I go and, you know, I am winning that race. I knew I was winning that race. And I remember the hurdles coming up so fast and I was like, okay, just adjust. And then out of nowhere, I hit the ninth hurdle. Literally, I only had to clear one more hurdle after that. In the moment, I was just trying to see, just trying to salvage the damage. Like, okay, maybe you could still squeak out a bronze or whatever. So I just tried to finish the race as best as I could. Like, I should have actually fell and like basically not finish that race. But I somehow cat-like maneuvered my way to finish that race. And when I crossed the finish line, I realized how bad the damage was and that I did not only not get bronze. I got seven. And so I just collapsed to the track and was, you know, crying and frustrated. And yeah. And then that's when, you know, I just, yeah. It was, How it was old were you when that happened? Oh my gosh. Was I like 25? I had to be like 25. My first you were time. young. I mean, that's yeah. young still too. And, you know, I watched that race again today as preparing for this interview and it is, I mean, you were in the lead and there was, you got two more hurdles and I don't know much about hurdling, but I heard you say in an interview, or I might've read it in your book that you said that you had never even fell from a hurdle until you got to college. Is that true? Like all through middle Correct. school and high school, never. You know, and so, and that's not uncommon to do that. I mean, you're asking someone to run as fast as they can and jump over something at the same time. Yeah, it's very rare. Most, most people hit more hurdles than that. And so I was just known as not hitting hurdles. Like I just would, that's how clean of a hurdler I was. And like I could count on my hands until that moment, how many hurdles I've hit in a race. It was probably like the college race. And then that one, like devastating. I was just like, wow. And so it's kind of weird to be a hurdler that doesn't ever hit hurdles to be known as the hurdler that hits hurdles. <laughs> so. As the hurdler who hit the hurdle in 2008, which, yeah. you know, and, you know, I watched that 
race again today, like I said, and you did, you fell to the ground, you talk about in your book. And then what I didn't remember about that 2008 competition that you were in is the next, you know, after that, you have to talk to all these reporters and it's just, that is gotta be so difficult to talk to reporter after reporter after reporter. And what you described that as reminded me of a friend of mine what played for University of Texas here. I live in Austin, Cole McCoy, when they were in the national championship and he hurt his arm and he comes out after the game and he, you know, he talks about it. He actually says something like, I give God all the glory and I don't question him. Like it was like this moment where people remember Cole McCoy's interview after. And I think that's what you experienced as well as you had all these interviews after and people remember the way that you handled yourself after that. Where did that come from? How were you prepped to be able to handle? That was totally the grace of God, to be honest. Like, I just remember there was, you have to do so many interviews. I think it's like a total, I think I was doing interviews for at least 20, 25 minutes. And it's the same question. So like, imagine just having your whole world ripped away. And it's like, oh, now let's talk about that. So you literally just lost the gold medal. How do you feel? You lost the gold medal. How do you feel? How do you feel hitting that hurdle? How do you feel like over and over and over and over and over again? And so- I talk about that in the book, how each interview started to like, just break me down more and more. But honestly, in that moment, I just really felt like God's grace, just giving me the answers. You know, I felt him holding me. I felt his peace. Like I even said that, you know, when I crossed the line, you know, and I was, I just could feel the bitterness starting to boil up in me, you know, within minutes after losing that race, like just felt it just coming to my chest, just God whispering to me, but you're here, you're here. And four years ago, you were sitting at home watching the Olympics and crying because you were at home watching them on TV. So now, I mean, I was like, okay, I'm crying, but I'm on the Olympic track. Oh my gosh. You actually <laughs> so. said in your book, you like, you said, I could write a whole book just on, but you're here. Why was that such a profound moment for you of, you said, I heard that, oh, but you're here, but you're here. Because I think so many things uh, in life will try to break you and, but try, but you're still here. You know, whether it's, you know, something bad happens in your family, a marriage, a relationship, uh, health problems, but you're here, you're still fighting and you've had progress along the way. So it's just for me, it was still reminding myself to have an attitude of thankfulness because when those bad things happen, that's immediately what is ripped away is your thankfulness. Mm. Mm. You, you talk about that. You say that one of the things is that, you know, so many people are chasing dreams and practicing thankfulness is what helps you keep going in that. Mm-hmm. And besides track and field and bobsledding and being an Olympic competitor, how has that also played out in your life? Or if you're chasing dreams or you're just trying to overcome obstacles that you've had, what does it mean to be thankful in the midst? Being thankful in the midst of a storm. I in mean, the midst of a storm or even looking yeah. back over your whole life. I mean, you had a hard childhood growing up. Where do you find thankfulness in that? Yeah. So growing up in poverty was really tough, especially, to, you know, my mom had five kids. My dad was in and out of prison. We just really had no money. I'll give you an example. We just, we never had, we could barely afford a car. And then if we had a car, it would always break down on us. And so I found that I would always have to walk to school. I'd have to walk to school, walk to the grocery store, walk everywhere. I was so tired of walking when I was growing up. And so instead of walking, I would run because it would take less time and I could sleep in and, you know, so I'd run. And then I just, you know, that was my childhood. And little did I know that that thing I hated the most running and walking to school is the thing that turned out to be a blessing because it gave me a scholarship to go to LSU and then on to the Olympics. So it changed my whole trajectory, not having a car, the thing I hated the most. (laughs) And then here you are, you know, competing on the biggest stages um, in the world. And you look back on that. Okay. So after 2008, then we go on to 2012. And where was that? Was that London? 
London. And what did that look like for you? Well, London was a completely different picture than 2008. So when I went into 2008, it was the number one hurdler in the world. I was running in crazy fast times. Well, before London, I had spine surgery a year out from the Olympic Games. So I'm watching the TV and I'm watching world championships. And I'm like, wait, Lord, you want me to be the fastest runner in the world. And I literally cannot walk right now. I'm in a hospital bed. Like how? So just starting from ground zero. And I remember going to those Olympic trials and just like all the commentators, they're writing port reports about me. There's no way Lolo Jones has a chance to make this team. Absolutely no way. Entering into the Olympic trials with one of the slowest times, but squeaked it out and got third, got the last spot to go to, to London. And I was so thrilled by that. And then I go to London and I get fourth. So one spot shy of a medal. What happens again? The press. <laughs> At first, I was very grateful for my fourth place because I was like, wow, God, like, this is a I huge I just had victory. spine surgery. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was so proud of that fourth. Like, I crossed the line and I had, like, peace. I was like, oh, like, yeah, it sucks not getting a medal. But I was like, I had peace. Like, I had peace uh, those first steps after crossing the line. And then when I started going to the press and they're just like, oh, but fourth. And then like my perspective started to shift and I went into the village and then my teammates were talking about me. And then the press started writing articles about me. And then internet trolls were like, you're such a flop. You're such a failure. And my perspective went in a very dark, bitter place very quickly. And then I, if literally within the two hours that I ran the race to getting back to the Olympic village, I struggled to do my praise and worship to God because I was so angry about getting mm. forth. And I had so much peace on the track moments before. So Wow, that's so crazy. I mean, you even talk about I read an article that was in Sports Illustrated, and you talk about how you even suffered from like some PTSD coming home off after this, from what press has uh, said and done about you. Well, what are your thoughts on like press and the internet and social media? Because it can be a great thing and it can help us all out, athletes and myself. I have a show that I rely a lot on social media for, but also it can be a beat down. I mean, people can say anything they want towards you, and there's no accountability, Absolutely. they're just behind a screen. I think it's pretty cowardly, but how has that affected your mental health even over the past 10 years? Uh, it's tremendously affected it in negative ways. And it's weird because in 2008, Twitter had just started. So it was really kind of non-existent. Mm -hmm. There was none of this. And I, you know, it was... Uh, when I finished my race, it was done. Like no one was mocking or teasing me for hitting a hurdle. There were no memes about it. There were no jokes on the internet. And then um, fast forward to 2012... Now you have Twitter's been there for four years, Instagram's out, and people are much more comfortable with saying negative things on social media. There was a drastic change in the reaction of me getting forth than when I hit the hurdle. And it was just like, you know, she's a flop and she can never meddle. And I think people have had years now where they're just comfortable saying whatever they want in the comfort of their home behind the computer screen. And it's just really prevalent. And there's been a lot of times where I've just really had to crowd to God to just help me and just felt like there was like a, an attack on me just because of social media. So it's been quite difficult for sure. What do you think that like we as the world, we as people who are consumers of social media, how do we make this different? Because when you hear from someone like you, who's on the other side of it going, Hey guys, there's a real person over here. Like, okay, that's funny that you can like make this meme about me hitting the ninth hurdle. I'm a real person. Like what, where's the disconnect between real people making fun of other real people? I wish I had the answer to that. Cause then I, would, I feel like you solve all the world's problems. <laughs> yeah. I don't have the answer to that, but there have been times where people have like changed my day by writing nice messages or if they're, is a troll, they're 
having people that stood up for me. And that's been definitely very helpful. And, you know, basically I just have to rely on my faith a lot during that moment because yeah. it just, sometimes it comes in waves where it's just uncontrollable. That's so true. It's so true. If you don't know it, guys, I'm a Texas girl through and through. I've lived here most of my life. I was born here and I love traveling. Here's why I love traveling throughout Texas, because it has a vast landscape of cultures, regions, destinations, and activities, which means there's an infinite number of different travel experiences. And no two travelers are exactly alike. And it means that no two trips should be either. If you're a beach person, well, you can have fun under the sun with Texas's 350 miles of coastline. If you're more of a rugged vacation type, there are campgrounds, hiking trails, and state parks galore. And foodies cannot get enough of Texas's world-famous barbecue and Tex-Mex. Enjoy live music, visit internationally recognized art museums, and check out thrilling cowboy experiences. And now, Travel Texas offers a -a one-of-a-kind online trip builder that allows users to generate a custom, visually-led trip matched to their unique interest. Guys, come visit my state. Visit TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn to get the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. That's TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. You write in your book about growing up biracial. Your mom is white and your dad is black. And I was very interested in reading that. I'm an adopted mom and one of my kids is biracial uh, with a white birth mom and, and black birth dad. And you said that growing up in Iowa, you didn't really think about it that much. And then you got to LSU and all of a sudden you were confronted with almost two different worlds and trying to figure out where do you fit in and where do you belong? And you talk about a lot in your book and I really appreciate it, but you talk about even in 2020 when George Floyd was murdered and how you had to kind of find your way even in talking about that. What was that like for you last year in 2020 being not only just a biracial woman in America, but also someone with a platform, someone with Mm -hmm. a presence and a voice where people look up to, how did you find your way through that? Well, it's not only in 2020, I've been actually dealing with this quite often. Like anytime there is a racial issue that comes about, especially like if I say something and then I have like, there's like black Twitter, right? There's black, I don't know if you know, but it's like black Twitter and then there's Twitter and I'll say stuff sometimes I'm and black Twitter be like, well, we don't even accept you because you're half. And I'm like, that makes no sense at all. <laughs> and then obviously I'm not fully white. So it's just like, I just feel like it's, um, I'm in a cross war every time there's something that is racial tension dividing America. And it's just hard because when you are in a biracial family, you can see it from both sides and your heart just hurts tremendously because you can see the perspective. And it's just like, you know, like all white people are not bad because my mom's white. So it's just like, 
how can all white people be bad? You know? And it's just like, it's like trying to navigate these potential waters. And then like, you know, but then you bleed, you know, your heart bleeds for the black side because you do like, I've seen my dad literally get racially profiled, especially with having, you know, dating or, and, you know, being with my white mother. So it's really a tricky situation to navigate. I think a lot of my European friends, they have a better kind of viewer point on this because when they, you know, some of the countries, they're not like, you know, in America, we're like, I'm black American. And like, let's say if they're German, they're German, you know, Mm -hmm. like even if they're black German, they're German. Right. Yeah. I don't know this, why we tend to do that in the United States, but I'm hoping this year was a lot of growing pains for us. And I'm hoping that, you know, we've had some tough conversations and things have gotten better. Um, But it's really tricky being biracial. So I think it's tricky being any race, to be honest, because they all have different things that they have to navigate with, to be honest. Totally, totally. I have a friend who is biracial as well. Her mom is black and her dad is white. And recently there was an article about our family in the Post and we were talking about the racial tension because three of my kids are black and I have another kid as well, all the things. And my friend reached out to me and she's like, I really appreciated hearing my son who is biracial, his point, because so many times I don't feel like I have a voice because I find myself trapped in between two worlds of black and white. And I was like, so I enjoy hearing your perspective because I'm raising a child who might potentially feel that way, especially having two white parents, you know? And so I think it's important to listen to your point of view as well, because we hear both sides. Have you ever, with your kids walking in, I know my mom got this a lot when she, white mother walking in with, you know, five, you know, mixed brown kids got stares. Do you ever get that? Oh yes. And we live in Austin. So there's a little bit more freedom, but we live outside of the city in a smaller town. And so it's a little bit different. You know, we joke that when we go to East Texas, we have a joke that it's our family. So all my kids are teenagers. So we can joke about these things and we're all good here. We'll walk in and one of us will be like, did anyone bring any of those photos of our family we could autograph? Because everyone's staring at us. Maybe they want a souvenir. And so we get stares for sure. And when they were younger, I was they thought I was like the babysitter because all my kids look different. And so, yeah, we've gone through that as well, which I'm sure you have as well. Mm-hmm. You uh, have Lola Jones Foundation. It's a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping single mothers with families, with incarcerated loved ones. This is obviously something you started because of your childhood. You grew up, your dad was in and out of prison, you said. What does it mean for your family to even see you have impact of giving back to the world with people who grew up just like you did? Well, the coolest event, we've done a few cool things, but the coolest one that I really enjoyed was we were able to do a shopping spree for these kids and give them gift cards to Academy Sports. And they literally just went and picked out their own shoes or clothes, whatever they wanted. They picked out and then they got to check out because I just remember getting a pair of, you know, track spikes donated to me, you know, and never having money for new shoes, you know, always have to borrow my teammate shoes. So that was really fun to do that. I'm, I'm looking forward to after the Olympics are finished to being able to have more time and energy to focus back on my foundation. So. I love it. Okay. So I'd like for you to tell us the story of how you went from Olympic hurdler to Olympic bobsledder, because I would never know into how those would overlap. I know a little bit more since I read your book about why it is important to have someone in the back there that can run fast. But how did that even come up for you of like, oh, I think I'm going to try out for the US bobsledding team? A few different ways. You know, obviously there's a really famous movie called Cool Runnings. It's getting a little outdated, but it's still a classic. If you never watched <laughs> yeah. it, it's still a classic. They need to actually remake it. So that seed was planted when I was quite young. And then also there was an athlete that went to LSU. He competed in the Summer Olympics and then went to compete in the Winter Olympics for bobsled. And so he would come back every year to LSU with, he's a coach now. And so he'd bring the Canadian track team down to LSU and they'd be like, oh, that's Glenroy. Like he did bobsled 
bobsled in the winter Olympics and he ran track in the summer. So like these little seeds were planted and kind of just, I just had to pay attention to them. And so after London, I was just so discouraged. I was getting a lot of hate on social media. The press was destroying me. And so I just sat on my couch for a month and it just did not leave. I just watched TV. I was super depressed. It was off season. So I had nowhere to go. I knew I still wanted to compete, but I just could, my heart was like, we can't run. We have no desire to run right mm. now. So that's when I just remembered bobsled and, you know, cool runnings, you know, and I was like, all right, I'm just going to go try bobsled. I mean, okay. So you say it so casually, I'm just going to go try bobsledding. I mean, you're a trained Olympic athlete, but what's the difference when running, you know, 60 meters or hundred yards than pushing a bobsled? It's actually not that different. Except you're eating pizza every day. Yeah, that was actually really fun. So (laughs) I had to gain a lot of weight because essentially, if you think about football players in the NFL linebackers where they have to hold the defensive line back, they're actually really big guys. And that's because they have to move weight. And so I had to gain weight. And I had to gain 30 pounds. <laughs> so I was eating pizza, wings, ice cream. I was doing it all the wrong ways. Now I do it the better way. But when I first started out, because I, I have to eat very strict for track, I was like, you know what? You know, I'm already depressed. Let's just go ahead and <laughs> yeah. let's just this do this. Moment. Let's just do this. You know, one of the other things that you've been quite outspoken about, other than your faith as well, but it just this also a part of your faith is the idea to save yourself until marriage. And this is a not talked about a lot and also not really upheld a lot, even among Christians in 2021. And so I think you came out publicly years ago. Yeah. Like 10 years ago. I was going to say, yeah, a while ago. Are you glad that you, do you feel like you needed, (laughs) (laughs) you feel like you needed to be public with that or could it have just been a personal decision? No. So I actually, it's not like I made this big announcement. I just got, I was getting really getting tired (laughs) of people like, why are you always so single? I don't understand, you know, like, cause I would never, you know, you see these celebrities now and they, they all go public with their boyfriend. I would never go. There was no one for me to go public with. And so people were like, I don't understand. You're funny. You're, you know, you're talented. You're good looking. Why don't you ever have a boyfriend? And like, you know, I just would ignore it for a while. And then finally, I don't know, one day I just got tired of just, you know, and I was like, look, the reason why is because I don't believe in having premarital sex. I've never, I've never had sex. Most people don't believe that. And so that ends a lot of dates. I just at responded to someone and that just like blew up. It got picked up everywhere. And so then in my next interview, of course, they asked me about it. I didn't even think it would be that big of a deal. It was pretty much trending all over. And, you know, when I made this decision, it was in, you know, middle school, even probably fifth grade. It was, I was so young. I can't even remember when I made it. And I figured, you know, I'd be probably married in my twenties, you know? <laughs> so here we are, I'm like 38, about to be 39. I'm just like, trust me, there've been definitely times where I've been very angry at God because of it. And especially, you know, in the last few years, cause I'm not, now I'm wondering like, okay, God, you know, I want kids. Like, am I going to be able to have kids or, you know, why wait so long that, you know, I won't even be able to have a family. That's one of my biggest dreams. So that's a bigger dream than, you know, competing in the Olympics and having an Olympic gold medal. So it's been very hard on my faith at moments and yeah, but It's funny though, because I love reading Christian books and I would always like, you know, I'll spend a lot of my weekends going into the the bookstore, picking out a Christian book. And a lot of them were like, you know, dating and waiting and like all these Christian self-help books, like to just prepare to yourself to be a great spouse when you're, and I'm like, well, where's the book for someone still waiting? You know, like (laughs) it's always these books and they're like, I did this and I got married at 24. It was such a hard wait. I'm like 24. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 
Yeah. I'm already so, 28. I'm, and now I'm 30. I'm 39. I'm like, where's the book for the person? Well, I guess I just wrote the book for the person that's really, really frustrated by waiting. <laughs> do, in all honesty, do you feel that there is missing from Christian culture and even maybe even your church that you attend? I don't know where that is. Do you feel that there's this like missing aspect of yes. where, where are we for the people? I'm not even gonna let you finish the question. I'm just gonna say <laughs> yes, because I've had, and I love my church and I listen to a lot of other churches on podcasts, you know, so, you know, I love getting encouraged with words of wisdom, but I just feel like we glaze over the singles. Like, you know, it's a lot of sermons on, you know, families and marriages and and keeping marriages strong and keeping that foundation great, which I'm sure if I'm married, I would like to hear that. But I think we're overlooking a lot of singles, especially uh, singles in their thirties. And, you know, this generation is getting married later and later. And so, yeah, it gets hard. Like I remember there was a point where it was really hard for me to go to church because it was a whole, you know, how they do sermons and like Mm -hmm. they do segments. And it was like a month and a half long on just families. And I was like, wow, yeah, where do I fit in at that? I live live by myself. Like, where do I fit? And then they're like, well, you know, if you're not married, just say this in the back of your mind for when you are. And I was like, (laughs) that's also a false narrative because I mean, I too, if you wish to be married one day, Lola, I think you, I hope that you are, but also nothing's guaranteed for us. Like, it's not like in the car, like, it's not like, oh, I know because I'm a Christian woman, I'm going to get married one day. That's just not a true statement. And so how do you even stay content, even with sometimes the world and even unfortunately the church telling you that you shouldn't be content because you're 38 and not married, but how do you stay content there? Because I think God has given us a different message is that marriage is not going to complete you. And marriage Mm -hmm. is not the ultimate goal. I don't believe that. I believe that marriage is not the ultimate goal in life. So what does that look like for you? At those moments, I'm really glad that I am an athlete because an Olympic medal is not guaranteed. All my hard work could end up in a big fat zero, you know, and being an Olympic athlete has not brought me satisfaction. You know, being an Olympian is like, it's not completed my heart. You know, the only moments who have, where I felt complete peace is where I really just felt God hold me and I'm tapping into his word and his wisdom. And so that's where it's just, I can see that correlation between my athleticism and my faith has really helped me. But yeah, I'm not guaranteed to get married. I'm not guaranteed to have a family. And it's really frustrating because you'll have that that advice be thrown at you. Mm-hmm. And then it's just like, you'll have advice. Well, like when you don't look for it, you know, that's when it happens. And it's just like, God does not say that in the Bible <laughs> anywhere. It says, seek and you shall find. You would never tell an unemployed person, Hey, you know, stop looking for that job. And it's just going to show up. <laughs> that's not how it works. Yeah. 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 And that so, advice is not helpful for someone because it's just still not true either. I mean, you know, like it's just, that advice is still saying that it's guaranteed to happen. But you know, that's what I love so much about your book. And I told you it's appropriate for anyone, not even just an athlete, because you're looking at like, oh, four, not making it. Oh, eight, you know, potentially being the fastest woman in that, on that track, in those lanes should have been a gold and didn't get it. And then you say, I've been chasing an Olympic medal for 20 years. And, um, you're still chasing that and you're still going after that. And I think so many people have that same kind of story of like, It's just like I'm doing my best. And that one thing that everyone says will completely isn't happening. And for you as an athlete, you have to fight it. Like, is this going to be finished if I never come home with the medal? I mean, what is, how do you do that? I really had to think about that a few years ago, especially when the pandemic hit, because at that moment, there was a time where they weren't telling us that the Olympics were postponed, canceled. So we, we thought that maybe it would be canceled. And that would have been my last. The 2020, you're talking about that one, yeah, right? Yeah, uh-huh. I was training for the 2020 Olympics and they did not say if it was going to get canceled or postponed. And so I was like, my career might be over and I don't even know it yet. And I had to come to terms 
terms with, okay, well, if I never get an Olympic medal, would I have peace with that? And so it took a while because I was like, man, that might rip me apart. But I know the thing that would bring me the most peace is the fact that I did everything I could. There wasn't an ab workout I skipped. There wasn't a, I ate healthy for track and field. I, yeah, I did all my routines and I was very diligent. That brought me a tremendous amount of peace knowing that my effort. And so I think that if you correlate that with your faith in God is that your honoring God in your effort. You know, it says we work for him, you know, like in my practices, when I want to back off, I remember, you know, God gave me this talent. So I work to honor him. You know, I'm not working to honor myself, but him to glorify him with my actions. And so, you know, whether it doesn't work out in life, like if you have this dream of starting something amazing or whatever it is, it's your effort that you're giving God, that that's, what's going to give you your peace at the end of the day when things work out or they don't work out. So is your track career over? No, oddly enough, I've been uh, assuming that, but I'm going to, I don't, what well, I was do, just, I wasn't trying yeah. to assume Lolo. I was just no, like, no, you weren't, I had, I did an interview and they were like, so former track, I was just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa. <laughs> I'm at the training center. They might kick me out. No, um, I want to just focus on bobsled and winter Olympics. And the thing I know what happens in bobsled is it makes me really, really strong and fast. And so I'll be in shape after the next winter Olympics, if I make the team, and then I could easily transition back to track. Uh, by losing the weight and just run another year just so that I can end my career in track. But it would just only be just for fun. There would be no pressure for the Olympics. It would just be to just run a last race and basically good wave goodbye. I love it. I love it. So I want to ask you to clarify something for our listeners. Two things. Number one, I think I've done this on here before because I've talked to other athletes. But what people need to know is like when you say that last year, as a professional athlete, you're not just running every four years. You guys are competing all year long. So all year. how many, if you say I got one more year, how many events will you compete in? One more year in track? Yeah. Let's say that if you're like, I want to give it one more shot. Um, I, I mean, run like 10 to 20 races. That's what I thought. I think some people don't assume that they're like, oh, you just show up every four years and run. And that's just not true at all. Yeah. I should have, I talked a little bit about my book, like world championship years and stuff like that. But yeah, we run every year and it's, uh, we know everybody we're competing against at the Olympics. We, it's, we see them before the Olympics. There's not some shocker like, oh, there's an Australian <laughs> girl I've never met before or someone from Greece. Like we know you've been competing against each other all year long. For years. Four yeah. years. And we've probably sat down and had dinner with them. So yeah, we know them all. I love that so much. Okay. So give us some bobsledding information because if anyone's like me, we're we're not really sure about it. You're right now it's July. You're at the training center. This interview is coming out in the middle of August. So explain to me when the qualifying are, when you know all those things. So we'll be kind of in the middle of team trials. I'll keep posting links on my social media accounts for people to check out. What's really cool is bobsled races will start in the fall. So around like October, going all the way to like December. So if you ever want to like in the winter, watch a bobsled race, drink a hot chocolate from your house. They're actually really fun to watch. They'll get you in the Christmas mode. And then, yeah, we'll post links. I'll post links to all the races and then we will name the Olympic team in January and compete at the Olympics in February. Okay. This is going to be a fun little couple of months with Olympics back to back like this because of COVID, you know, I'm an Olympic fan, so I love it. And then it's funny because I was talking to someone the, yesterday and they're like, I've never watched the Olympics. I'm like, are you even American? What is wrong with you? How are you not watching the Olympics? I don't know, but I love them. Lolo, I'm so excited about people getting their hands on your book and being able to watch you compete. And I appreciated just the vulnerability that you put forth in that book and talking about the trials you've had to overcome and things you've had to do. And even the, some of the difficulties that just being a professional athlete in the spot that has brought you. And so thank you so much for the work that you did. 
Well, thank you for having me. I enjoyed this quite a bit. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today yay okay i do need to ask you this though what's the last book that you read because we like to tell everyone what we're reading these days oh uh ryan hall's run the mile you're in love 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 that book that's so good okay and he's a he's a long distance runner right am i right okay long distance runner i think he's the fastest american ever for the marathon so crazy. I could not run 26 miles. Could you? And you're, and I. Okay. Okay. I was like, it doesn't translate. <laughs> it doesn't translate well. Well, thank you so much for coming on the happy hour. Thank you for having me. Bye. Bye. All right, guys, I hope that you enjoyed this interview today. And if you follow me on Instagram, you've seen my nonsense of talking about my junior Olympic medals that I received when I was in middle school and how I get so giddy about them. And usually when I interview an Olympic athlete, for some reason, I tell them that I ran in the junior Olympics. And you guys, I didn't this time. I was actually so very proud of myself when I finished the interview, knowing that I did not tell an actual Olympic athlete that I was a junior Olympian. But anyhow, if you're loving the Olympics, I hope you love this conversation with an Olympian as well. Guys, next Wednesday, we've got a great show for you. Caitlin Scheiss is here. She has a book called The Liturgy of Politics, which I absolutely devoured this year. And so we talk about how do we be faithful Christ followers and engage in politics next week on the show. Thanks so much for listening to the Happy Hour with Jamie Ivey podcast. We are truly grateful for every single story that we get to share with you, every encouragement we get to bring to you, and every opportunity we get to point us all to Jesus. If you're loving this show, we would appreciate it if you would leave us a rating and or review wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, tell your friends. That is actually the number one way that people find out about our show, because you tell them. Join us right here every Wednesday and Friday for meaningful conversations that make us think, make us laugh, and point us to Jesus. Also, come find me on other places around the internet as well. I love Instagram. I'm at Jamie Ivy, And we've been having some fun posting videos on YouTube as well. Sometimes you wish you could see the person I'm interviewing. Well, come over and find us there and you can. JamieIvy.com slash YouTube. The Happy Hour is produced by Lindsay Sweeney. Show notes are written by Abigail Castell. Graphics by Rachel Ray. The show is edited by the team at Podshaper. And I'm your host, Jamie. And I love every single week that I get to be here with you guys. Until next time, have a happy hour with a friend. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, 
<laughs> That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. 